Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We are saying as long as there is breath in our bodies, we will not forget you. If we don't deal with this issue now, the problem will get bigger. The lack of empathy. These women need to get over themselves. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. I'm just watching a video here, lads, uh, of a goat out in Blackpool, out there near the Cluid Housing Developing, walking along, strolling along in the morning rain and without a care in the world. Out in Blackpool. <laughs> Thanks to whoever sent that in. Yeah, another another goat on the loose in Blackpool this morning. What? Where are they all coming from? Is the question that still hasn't been properly answered. Good morning. Thank you to Fiona for the last couple of days. You know the way some people go out and then they go out, out. Well, I take a long, long weekend sometimes. Thank you for the people who rang in yesterday wondering, was they all right? I'm grand. I'm fine. I'm all rested and well. Other than the fact that I hate this weather. And it's with us now until God knows when. But there's your man strolling around Blackpool. Out of care in the world this morning. Did you see him? And Does anybody know where these goats are coming from? Not that it'll brighten up a dull old morning. Anyway, something that doesn't brighten up the morning and if you have any thoughts on it is warnings coming now from people like the deputy chief medical officer and the number is very stark this morning that 4,393 cases of COVID reported in children aged 5 to 12 in the two weeks up to last Monday. Like There's huge numbers of cases now in the youngsters and the deputy chief medical officer Dr Ronan Lynn was giving some advice that isn't very easy to hear. It will mean that some children are very disappointed this weekend, but if you have a sick child, then please isolate them and don't let them mix with other children. Do not let them out trick-or-treating. If you have any thoughts on that, come to us during the morning, 1850-715-996. I don't know what you did with your weekend. I went out to the jazz launch on Friday evening, and it was a very well-controlled, very... A compliant event and we enjoyed ourselves very much. I went for a couple of points with a buddy of mine after that. 
And I began to hear reports on Saturday of people getting spiked, but not getting spiked in the usual way. And then uh, on TikTok, uh, we saw this video. This, this video is from the 19th of October. This is a, a video made by a lady called Nia. I don't know how to go about this, but I'm just going to let it all out and say how I feel. So I know we're all excited. Like, I am so excited to go out and party and um, get back to the nightlife again. <sighs> However, um, what I'm seeing on social media is really making me take a step back and really scaring me. Uh, I am seeing so much stories and awful images of people being spiked. And no, this is not new. Being spiked is not new. I have been spiked in the past. It, I'll tell you guys about it again. It was an awful experience. Um, traumatic, you could say. But I've recovered. Some people haven't. Really sad. It's awful. However, um, that was because I let my guard down and didn't cover my drink. But now I'm seeing it is happening like into people's arms, like needles and stuff, like taking it to the next level. Like, how can I prevent that? How can I prevent that happening to me, my friends, anyone? Because I always used to put my hand over my drink. We've all done it. Have I anything here to show you? A little drink, you know, we all know this trick. We all know on our phones, whatever. Remember, this is, this is us on a night out, right? Drink from a little straw, Okay. How can I prevent that happening going into my arm? Like, what am I supposed to do? Not even my arm, my legs, the side of my neck. How can I prevent that? What do I wear? What can I do? Like, I'm so scared. And people are going to say, oh, that won't come to Ireland, blah, blah, blah. You're really being naive if you don't think that. There are crazy people everywhere that will think of that idea and take it and bring it here. So... I'm just sending out a little warning to everyone just to remember to watch your backs and stay with your group and just surround yourself with good people, okay? I love you all. Have a great weekend. I'm so excited. But um, just a little PSA, just for you to remember. Hey, Nia, good morning to you. Hi, good morning. How are you? Great to have you on The Opinion. I was very impressed in one thing that you did there. I said it last week and a few people said it was victim blaming. But I said, if you're out, get someone to mind the drinks if you go to the toilet. Keep an eye on your own drink. Take a little bit of responsibility. I got crucified for that on social media. But thank you for mentioning. It is so important, isn't it? It is because, like, it's really passionate. I'm really passionate about it because it has happened to me in the past and I take it personal when people say like oh what you know what you just mentioned there and it is a responsibility so you have to do it now Mm. we shouldn't have to be responsible for our drinks but with the world the way it is we just have to be so if you're going to the bathroom like you mentioned make sure someone's there watching the drinks Mm -hmm. and if you leave a drink do not go back for it and if someone's going around but if someone's going around the club or the pub Nia with a a, a syringe prepared to stick it into your knee or into your hand or into your arm. What can you do about that is the question you're asking. It's it's up in the air at this stage. Well, like, how can we prevent that? Like I mentioned in my video, like, I don't know how we can prevent it. My only uh, idea is that bouncers just get more strict, I you know, and start patting people down, going in and checking bags. That's all I can think of what people can do. Or the number one, don't spike anyone, really. <laughs> Yeah. That should be the number one. Hmm. 
you know what? That's something we can say all day and all night, but we're kind of wasting yeah. our breath because people are going to do it anyway. But yeah. you're, you're right. You're right. But the thing about being searched, like I was going to nightclubs when I was your age and you were kind you might be patted down, you might be checked on the way in. Mm-hmm. But there was never a very thorough search. Yeah. No, I suppose you're right. But maybe I don't know, maybe bouncers have to get more strict. I don't know. I can't think of any other idea because, yes, I'm uh, making awareness of everything, but how can I come up with ideas to maybe stop it? It's all good and great if we can all talk about it. It's really, really good. But how can we prevent it? It's a big question. <laughs> the saddest part is, Nia, and I worked the clubs in Cork for a lot of years and I know people still work them. And in certain circles, it's called... It's just, that's a bit of a laugh, like. That's oh what they think. God. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. That's scary. Oh, don't even tell me that. <laughs> it's true, though. A lot of people, ah, it's only a bit of a laugh, like. It's going to happen. Yeah. They're gonna, you know, you're, you're going to get wobbly on your legs and pass out. Sure, oh, what? Your God. friends will take you home. There is an attitude of that out there. It's horrible, but it's there. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's just terrible to think about. I never, never would have thought it in that way. Yeah, they do. They do. It's unfortunate, you know. Yeah. And I'm not here to make anyone scared. I just want to make awareness because it has happened to me and I'd never, ever wish it on anyone because it's an awful feeling. It's terrible. And whether it's into the drink or into the arm, it's just, it's awful. And it was traumatic. And yeah. I'd never want it to happen. What again. happened to you? Um, I got spiked in my drink. I left my drink unattended. I went back to it and I learned my lesson, really. Yeah. yeah. And got very, very sick. Well, you had your friends with you to look after you? I was so lucky to have friends. I had my two best friends with me the whole the whole night. I hadn't left them my side. And I'm very, very grateful for them now. And our circle as well. Like, we're all great at taking care of each other. Mm. So, mm. yeah. Do you think among staff in the pubs and clubs, there, there needs to be more awareness too, like training into what to do if you find somebody? It's not, they're, yeah, they're not, you know, don't just assume they're pissed. Like, there's something else wrong. Yeah, I never thought about that too, that staff could have a say and have a garden of two. I never thought about it like that also. But I think so. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with you. Mm. Like, did you go out the weekend? Oh, did I go out the weekend? This The weekend gone by, yes. I'm at uh, home, actually, in my local area, so uh, mm. with friends and family. But I haven't gone out in, like, a proper nightclub setting in a while. Yeah. Like when you were going out now with the friends you met at the weekend, like were they worried? Were they talking about this? Were they kind of extra on their guard? Oh, no. See, we hadn't, we kind of knew from our family. My parents kind of pushed it on uh, me, definitely, because uh, we own a pub ourselves and right. uh, terrible of what happened. And it's happened to people I know. So, mom and dad kind of pushed that on me. Like, if you're going out, make sure you never go back to a drink. And of course, I completely had forgotten and I didn't think about it after a few months and we went out and I just had forgotten and left my drink unattended and went back to it. Yeah, yeah. And look, it's mostly fellas doing this to girls. So like among your male friends, Nia, mm-hmm. would they be aware of how of how worried you and the others are? Yeah, I they definitely are. After what happened to me, I think it kind of shocked the guys that this actually does happen here. And it's not just uh, he said, she said kind of stuff like it's all in the media. It literally has happened mm. in our friend. I'm very lucky to have great guy friends that um, are very supportive and back me up and can, you know, tell my story as well, because that's all I really want is to get 
people more aware. And when you mentioned they're mostly lads, and lads can do this to another lad. Yeah. You know, it's not just us girls. It ha- can happen to another lad. It's, it's, it can happen to anybody. So... Yeah. I'm reading an article here, or was reading an article, Nia, uh, outlining a few things that happened in the UK. There was a student in Nottingham, uh, 19 years of age. Mm-hmm. Was, she, she blacked out, and then when she woke up, there was a kind of a pinprick mark in the back of her leg. Uh, police are involved, and someone's been arrested. There was another student in Nottingham woke up with a pain in her hand, and she had a a hole there in the back of the needle. Um, in Scotland, there are investigations in Edinburgh, Dundee, Glasgow, Aberdeen, uh, Merseyside Police also investigating, but they've not found no in, no evidence of criminality. So this is big. This is happening all over the UK, and there is absolutely no reason why it couldn't happen here. That was just my whole point of if it's happening there, some psycho can bring it over here. And I think I did read the one on the Nottingham girl, yeah. and. I've seen pictures and stuff that they've posted online. I'm not sure if it's hers or not, but, you know, the drug may have not gone into her system, but she was still pricked with a needle and she's all yes. bruised. Yes, Because um, usually on after a night out, you might have a few bruises on the feet from heels. But this whole bruising on the side of, you know, hands or arms, legs with, you know, a little prick is a bit different yeah. because God knows what could have been on that needle before mm-hmm. or... There you Whatever. go. There you, you go. It know. just adds to the danger. It looks a bit like an insect bite. You know when an insect bite might get infected? Yeah. It looks yeah. a bit like one of those. Um, but what, do we have that here in Ireland, insect bites? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. We have, you see, you get a tick bite here. Um, oh, and a tick bite or something like that, and you get a big red swelling around it. You need to watch that uh-huh. for. We'd be very watching that for Lyme's disease, but it's it's yeah. you know it, it, it's yeah. But it looks like if you get like, what? Where are you going to get an insect bite in a nightclub? That, that's know? what I was thinking. A few of them in the in the nightclub as well. Yeah. No, it's it is a little scary, and um, I can't believe it's like already been it's already like across Ireland everyone's talking about it which is great that's all I really wanted yeah 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 okay Nia enjoy the, enjoy the the return of, of your social life I know that you know people in your age group have been longing to get back out there but it can't be it can't be easy with all this going on no no look right. it's another thing to add I suppose to how the world is not as it is anymore yeah. but Hopefully there'll be safety, you know, precautions put in now for this too, yeah. which would be great. And just more awareness. You have a whopping great, great following on TikTok. You have something like a quarter of a million. What What are you saying to them? Oh, um, well, at the moment, I'm just telling people not to be, I'm not, not here to scare anyone. I want everyone to have a good time. Like I want to go out and have a good time as well. It's just all about being aware and who you're surrounded by and sticking with friends and people you know. And just don't go back to a drink. Just don't go back to a drink. All right, all right. Looking after yourself, Nia. Thank you very much for being with us on The Opinion. And that is Nia Garraher, well-known Irish TikToker. 250,000 followers. But that was the video she made last week that she'd been hearing about all these injections. They've been in Nottingham, on Merseyside, all over Scotland. There are one or two reports, I just say reports, that there might have been an incident or two over the weekend in Cork. We have no confirmation of that. But I did hear it. The problem is the authorities' response. Like, 
Police Scotland say they're investigating Edinburgh, Dundee, Glasgow and Aberdeen. Police in Merseyside said they didn't uncover any evidence of criminality. Well, what is going around a nightclub with a syringe, sticking it into people uh, and perhaps injecting them with... What is that only criminality? Surely is a form of assault. Caller says, Women are taught to cover their drinks or never leave them unattended. Not to go to the bathroom in a club alone, but to keep your wits about you. What now? Do we need to invest in body armour? Well, one thing, and I noticed it's a thing with women. I, I don't know if men do it. I've Personally, I'm not a man that does it. But if you have four or five women together in a group or three or four women together in a group, they will all go to the loo together. Well, you got to stop that now. One has to stay back at the table. Keep an eye on the drinks. Keep an eye on the drinks. Cover your own drink. Keep an eye on your own drink. I've seen the way Nia described it there on her video where you just, they literally hold their hand over the top of the drink and drink from a straw. It's terrible that people have to do that. They shouldn't have to do that. We wish people wouldn't spike drinks, but you have to look out to yourself too. 1850-715-996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Cork's Gold Imro Award winning sports show. Right, right here, right then. The score on Cork's 96FM. Join me, Trevor Welsh, Sundays from 2 for the best music mix and all the latest sport as we focus on another busy weekend of Gaelic Games action. Plus, we have reaction to Cove Ramblers and Cork City's final games of the 2021 season. Right here, right then. Right here. Join Trevor Welch for the score this Sunday from 2 p.m. With Firebird Heating Solutions. If you're building, think of the Firebird Air Source Heat Pump with underfloor heating and heat recovery. See firebird.ie. Right here, right now. On Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, that's a good point being made on the phone here. Delivering the drug successfully is very hard, but the problem is a lot of fellas are trying it. The issue with the needles is that the perpetrator most likely has not sterilised it. So beyond the content of the needle, there's also that to be taken into account. Plus the fact that they're hardly going to do what you should do, which is use one needle and discard it. They're going, to run, they're going to go around and do multiple people. So God knows how apps just, what's the word I'm looking for? Contaminated that needle could be. It's a very, very dangerous development. And I worked the clubs for many years and Fergal worked the clubs for many years. And we all knew about spiking. We all knew how to watch for spiking or, or how to know if your friend had been spiked or whatever. But this is new. This is new and this is awful. And the problem is, everyone knew about devil's breath for two years, but authorities around the world just kind of either turned a blind eye or didn't seem too bothered. I mean, in France, for example, they completely ignored it and it was doing fierce damage in France. If you have any thoughts, 1850-715-996. Now, we followed the story of the South Dock on the north side in great detail on this programme over the past 12 months. And it closed, and then it stayed closed. And Thomas Gould, Sinn Féin TD, campaigned, as did others, 
for it to be reopened. It was due to reopen in September, I believe it did. Not entirely sure what its hours are, but it is open again. But now, some GPs have said, actually, there should only be one base in the city because the service can only efficiently deliver one base in the city. Is that what you mean, Dr. Mike Thompson, or or is there a different reason why one base should do? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Thanks for having me on. So, PJ, like, I'm, I'm not going to tell City South Dock GPs how to run their service. I'm part of the East Cork service, yes. but it was with a little wry smile that the more rural GPs amongst us uh, noticed that I suppose the, the city were, were hoping to have two. You know, we had started off in 2005 in East Cork with three bases, two drivers and a nurse, and we now have one base. So uh, I think, you know, there are many parts of the county that you ne- it needs about 60 minutes or 40 kilometres to get to an out-of-hours base. So I don't really care where South Dock put their base in the city, but I think one should be absolutely fine. And then you talk about safety, PJ. I think, you know, you're just duplicating it. Um, and I think it's fine for some politicians to adjust your politics. You know, that's what they do. That's absolutely fine. But to be talking about best practice when they unfortunately really have no idea about that is a little rich, unfortunately. Yeah, Thomas so, Gould has you know, said can... to have only one is, uh, to, to quote, he said it is contrary to best practice and best outcomes to only have the one. Yeah, interestingly, when we wrote to his party back in 2009 in East Cork, when we had a problem, we wrote to all the local politicians. Theirs were the only party who didn't even deign to give us a reply. That's a bit rich from them. But PJ, I mean, East Cork, there's a problem. There's a problem in East Cork is the same. It's replicated everywhere, if I can just run through things. We opened in 2005 with a population of 42,000 people and 27 GPs. That population has since doubled, and we have only an extra 25% of GPs. Okay, so... uh, last year I did 205 hours out of hours which is an extra five weeks work on top of my annual work if that's okay and including in that are people who don't have GMS contracts so that's people who have no statutory lists no pension no sick leave etc the co-op cells are also very different and the city GPs will do quite short shifts which is fine for them if that's okay they have a bigger volume to draw on but next weekend i'll go on east cork south dock and i'll do 14 hours on saturday and i'll do 14 hours on sunday and if i was a pilot or a truck driver that would be illegal okay that is far from best practice pj okay the other thing is south dock own figures is that over 80 percent of calls to south dock are routine so that means South Dock themselves. South Dock is an out-of-hours emergency service or urgent service that cannot wait until your own GP reopens. Now, I might come back to that in a minute. It is not, PJ, unfortunately, for convenience, okay? Um, the, the, it's not for checkups. It's not for chronic conditions. It's for stuff that can't wait. 80% is classified by South Dock themselves as routine. 3% of South Dock calls are house calls, are domiciliary visits. Mm. Those, I would suggest, are the only calls South Dock should be doing. Those are for nursing home and local hospitals. Those are for palliative care. Those are for our very elderly and firm patients. Those are for perhaps our um, housebound patients. And I suspect sometimes those with acute mental health issues who need uh, urgent attention. We have become so busy in South Dock, so busy seeing self-limiting, transient, and dare I even say it, PJ, trivial illness that we now cannot access the very calls that we need to. It has become uh, uh, paradoxically... Those are strong words, Dr. Dr. Thompson. Those are very strong words. And the reason I I would say they're strong words is, well, if I feel sick at 10 o'clock at night and I am in pain 
I just feel awful. It's not mm-hmm. fair to say that's a trivial call. I'm not a doctor. I can't self-diagnose. Peter, that's fine. That's called. But we would see conditions that are going on for more than three months. We would see rashes. I do Christmas Day typically, and you would be very surprised at the amount of things that people will decide to present. 80% of calls are routine, PJ. Another 15 or so, maybe 16, are what we'd call urgent. So that's acute onset pain, like you gave an example there. Mm. And three are emergency. These are South Ops own figures, PJ. Routine, which means stuff that maybe should wait for their own GP. Now, and tell there, me something, there are, there you know, I know, problems, I know the nurse, sorry, there's a slight delay. I, I know that the nurse makes the first call back, isn't it? When I ring the 1850 number, it's usually a nurse will ring back, does a bit of triage over the telephone and assesses what's up. Is it at, would, would the nurse not advise at that point, look, you know, this is really something that could wait till you go to see your own GP? Yeah, so the service level agreement South Dock have, and I'm not on the board of South Dock with the sure. HSC, is that there should be nurse triage. Um, I must say we find nurse triage to be variable. And certainly with the start of the COVID pandemic, all people were getting a GP call back. Um, it has reduced it. It has certainly reduced it of late. PJ, there are three problems, I suppose, inherent with South Dock, and, it, uh, you know, and GPs are part of the problem. Some people do not have a GP. Yeah. Some people cannot get a GP appointment. And some people cannot get a GP appointment when they want it. Okay. So my, I'm not here giving out about Doc. I'm here to try and increase GP daytime capacity. And, and I certainly would love to, to and, and yeah. have enlighten us a little bit more. So the floor is yours, Mike. General practice by daytime is generally a fixed capacity service. We have massive supply demand mismatch. We have increasing population, increasing demand, increasing expectations, increasing morbidity, uh, survivorship, polypharmacy. We have more treatment options. We have larger, longer consultations for things like mental health, obesity, frailty, menopause, people coming with lists. We have chronic disease management. We have vaccinations. We have under six moving to under 12. We have more retirements, 25% of GPs leaving in the next six years. We've increased emigration and more and more GPs are keen to work in the city as opposed to rurally, mainly because of the out-of-hours commitment. So, GP, all that has displaced our acute capacity by day. That means we have less possibilities to fit people in. And I understand people ring and can't get an appointment with their GP today, tomorrow, for three weeks' time. But the out-of-hours is worsening it. So we need to fix daytime before we can fix out-of-hours. Right. And, PJ, I personally believe only GPs can change general practice. Okay, I feel maybe right now the HSC, certainly the politicians, maybe even South Dock, and perhaps patients think that the out-of-hour system is benefiting them. GPs definitely don't, and therefore patients will suffer. But this is all about patient advocacy, PJ. Like, I work as a I do all my shifts. We need to attract younger graduates to, to general practice. We need to ed- energise the career, I think, you know. Hmm. Yeah, well, why PJ, is there such remember? a shortage of GPs? They're voting with their feet. It's a world market, PJ, unfortunately. You know, and, and, and morale isn't great at the moment. I think it's a great career. It's, you know, it, it really is. But where it falls down, where everyone mentions when we try and interview them to come for a job to certainly the more rural places is, oh, I don't fancy the out of hours. No, thanks. Okay. So we need to make that more attractive. We need to perhaps make out of hours the 15 or 3% of what it was initially designed for. It is acting now as a safety valve for the overflow of daytime patients who can't or won't get an appointment with their GP, but it is making it worse. It is this kind of vicious circle, PJ. So again, I say like w- when I'm working in by daytime, I have 15 minutes with someone. I know their history. I have personal knowledge of them. I know their diseases. I know their medicine. And I have 15 minutes. When I walk into South Dock, 
I have 10 minutes. I have to do six an hour of people. I have no idea who they are and what they are. That's not best practice, PJ. Okay. Then if I have a house call for an hour and a half, those remaining ones are going to get squeezed more. So people are not being served by having a a high volume service like South. I think we need to increase daytime general practice capacity. I absolutely need to know that. But I, I, I don't know. I think we need to maybe uncouple the 24 hour contract. Um, those who want to work out of hours can get an enhanced contract. That will certainly energize and revitalize daytime general practice. Mm. It might make our graduates more likely to stay in the country too as well. Mm. It's, a, it's the greatest job on the planet. I, I love it. Yeah. But out of hours is the one thing we keep hearing back from all the surveys. It's a problem. It increases our indemnity. You know, it, 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 PJ, like, you know, the next weekend now, 14 hours, I'm lucky I've supported home. But what if you're a single parent? You know, what if you're mm. someone sick? that's the problem PJ People, how much of this Mike is down to the fact that the GP the typical mm-hmm. family doctor is not actually a HSE employee Employee, you, you run your own businesses you're all private operators and would it be best pra- or better practice for the HSE to actually hire GPs to staff things like South Dock well, so they can't get them, PJ, but I, I would ultimately think what is going to possibly happen, there may be super cells. So East Cork, North Cork, Bandon, Kinsale may all move into the city. Uh, I don't know that happened. The city may certainly decide to break away and run its own private venture like it had in the past. Um, I would say the city is perhaps under less pressure. They have two emergency departments, two private hospitals, VHI, Affidea, mm-hmm. Mercy Urgent Care Centre and a walk-in GP and now two tax services. Um, the mar- market forces, PJ, will dictate it. I don't think, I, I think eventually, you know, you will see around the edges in, in, in Cork and Kerry that there are lots of GMS vacancies. I think the HSE will try and fill those roles, but they've been trying to, PJ. The GPs are not available. They're moving to other jurisdictions and that's mm. just the way it is. So A question on the different. phone, and I've often heard this discussed previously, you know, medical graduates uh, who could become GPs, is there a case to be made Mike, for for them to be made, give us three to five years working for and within the HSE before they head overseas, because like there is a massive brain drain. We know that. So why not the same for every other graduate? I would suggest the other thing, PJ, is that will probably support richer people um, who will be able to you know pay their student loans and stuff. Uh, PJ, I did serve my time. I've more than paid my fees yeah. back in the tax that I've earned. So I, I think you know that will just mean people that will not go into medicine. Um, or they were going to medicine in other areas. So they have looked at that. So are there, are there solutions? Are there practical more. solutions? Yeah, absolutely. So my contract is from 1970, PJ. That's that's actually older than I am, okay? This is from a time when people didn't have mobile phones. PJ, most people didn't even have cars at that time, to be honest, okay? Like, there was a concept of the doctor being kind of on call from home, you know, this very currently 60-year-old GP with his Gladstone bag going house calls, dispensing wisdom along the way. Now you go to South Dock and it's like a e okay? It, it, you need to uncouple, you need to, you need to remove 24-7. It will make general practice family-friendly. It will allow locums to come in, it will allow maternity, paternity leave. The issue then, PJ, is I think the city is always going to be fine. They've got a critical number of GPs, uh, private ventures or patients, but I would genuinely suffer for places like the Bearer Peninsula yeah. and, and Kerry and Inland, you know. They, they won't. They were just def, definitely going to have to get used to, to, to traveling longer 
the distances. Yeah. So you know, some people are not impressed with what you said about uh, the doctor has me fuming. GP's refusing to see us at the moment, so sometimes we have no option but to ring South Dock. If he wants me to get my rash seen, then maybe they should sort out the way they run things. Another one, does he really think people are sitting at home ringing them on a whim? How dare he say that? Anne says, him saying about the rash to get it seen on normal daytime. Doctors are still not seeing their patients. They're diagnosing over the phone, yet we're hearing calls out in the media for cancer that went undetected. I can only talk about my own experience, PJ. I've been open the whole time, seeing patients face to face the whole time. I suggest they take that up with their patients. I don't, if this becomes a GP versus patient thing, you'll drive more patients. You'll drive GPs away from general practice. Yeah. We need to have a conversation. Um, Patients are part of the solution. GPs are part of the solution. The HSC are part of the solution. To me, politicians are never part of the solution. Um, So what I'm, I'm not, I'm not defending South Docker general practice. I'm telling people what's happening. Yeah. Okay, and that's unpleasant. If they can't get an appointment with their GP, you take that up with their GP. If your GP is not seeing you face to face, there may be very good reason for that. Okay, I can only come on in here and defend what I do. Sure, sure, sure. The other sure. thing it's South Dock is not safe. Okay, that's it, it is not best practice to be saying that there should be two. You're just dividing the service into two. You know, you're not increasing. It's people saying more doctors. The reason I'm on here today, PG, is there are no doctors. There are less doctors. There are more patients or GPs going out the back door than in the front door. This is bad now. It's going to be apocalyptic in five years' time. We need to attract GPs to the daytime service, you know. Mm-hmm. And the solution is uncouple 24-7, unfortunately, you know. So don't have something like a South Duck, is that it? Or have it as a separate, yeah, separate? General practice is going to, general practice is going to vote with their feet anyway, okay? They're, they're already, I mean, you are going to find out that cells are going to have to become bigger and bigger. It, it, it is a reality that some of our modern graduates are not interested in providing 24-7 care as part of our contract. Yeah. Okay? That means those of us who are remaining servicing it are under more and more pressure. You're getting you're going to see more and more. Again, I always say elastic only stretches so far, PJ. Then you make a mistake. You're the worst in the world. Okay. It is awful going to a South Dock service with a dread in your stomach. What am I going to miss? Going home at 12 o'clock at night. What have I missed? What have I not safety netted? You know, to be seeing 50, 60 patients a day on a Sunday. No one can tell me that's safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stark, isn't it? It's stark. Yeah. And you're facing two 14-hour shifts at the weekend. Do you mind me asking why that is, Mike? Is there just nobody else? There's not. But that's it. That's that's the, that's our rota. I mean, in 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 our uh, McCroom colleagues were supplying an area of Carlo for years with four GPs. Yeah. People don't get a PJ. Like, you know, you think, oh, your GP works, you know, he goes in at half nine, leaves at 12 o'clock, has a round of golf, has a long lunch and goes, you know what I mean? The modern reality of general practice is 12-hour days. The face-to-face is about half of that. We are running private businesses. We have so much stuff, PJ, the, the paperwork to do. And then you're rushing out of here at six o'clock to try and get to see people who basically you have turned away during the day because you've probably called if that it's not important enough to see during the day or they're waiting a day or two or three or four or whatever to see me by day. And then you ring South Dock and you're seen within 10 minutes. It, there's something broken, PJ. Okay. okay. Um, okay. It, it's difficult and... and People can get cross at me. I'll find that. These are the facts, okay? Okay. Um, and if people can't see or ask with their GP, that's you know we're we're well open to people need to feed that back absolutely. But th- there's a supply demand mismatch. All right. Okay. Let's leave it leave it there. Very enlightening 
conversation, some of what we might call uncomfortable truth. But thank you very much, Dr. Mike Thompson, who's attached to the East Cork uh, section, the East Cork Clinic and Immokilly Medical Centre. Yeah, look, best practice is what we had, we aim for everywhere we, every, everything, everything we do. We're not qualified to say what's safe and what's not. Dr. Thompson giving his opinion. He's far best placed to give that opinion than we are. But look, best practice is what it is, what it is. Uh, Deputy Thomas Gould wants to respond to some of the things Mike's been saying next. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Oldies and Irish on Cork's 96FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Welcome along to the program. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Douglas Court Shopping Centre. They've got everything you need and more. Visit douglascourt.ie. Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Actually, Dr. Mike Thompson's comments about it becoming rude routine or echoed in an article in the Echo uh, by Dr Nick Flynn a uh, friend of course of the Opinion Line for many years who said South Dock is not, is not an urgent out of hours doctor service anymore it's become a service that's being used for routine problems which is actually part of the challenge in providing the service Deputy Thomas Gould you wanted to respond to some of the things that uh, Dr Thompson was saying good morning good morning PJ he reckons that if we were to manage it properly, one would do for the city. It doesn't necessarily matter where it is, but one is enough. No, he's incorrect there. And the reason he's incorrect is because the HSC has told me officially that the best outcome for patients is when uh, services are provided locally, when people are kept out of A&E and kept out of hospitals. Mm-hmm. And that's, you see... no. I, but there's I not enough doctors uh, to staff them. That's the yes, thing. But, but that's a separate issue. The issue here is to give people and patients the best outcomes in their illnesses is if you have local health services in place. Sure. And that's, these are the facts according to the HSC. Sure, but he's so, making the point there's not enough doctors to staff those. But that's, that's a separate issue. Like, are we going to put people But how do you say, you have to solve, if you're going to say, right, let's put two in, and I think and there's not a person would disagree with you, Thomas, that one on the north side and one on the south side is, is, is ideal. It's ideal if you can. But when the doctors aren't there, what do you do? Well, you see, PJ, we're trying to solve the problem by cutting services, which isn't the way way to go. Like, the problem here, and what I would agree with the doctor on a number of points he made, is in relation to getting more doctors to stay in GP in general practice. Mm -hmm. Like, he described how the contract he is is older than he is, or before he became a doctor. Um. And that's the problem here. Like, we're looking at doctors. He described how he's doing a 14-hour shift. No doctor should be... You're doing two of them this weekend coming because there's just nobody else. But but the point here, PJ, why would doctors stay in practice if that's what they're looking at? Mm -hmm. So the problem here is to fix the GP contracts, to get more GPs, and also to train more GPs. So, like, we've got an excellent college uh, structure here in Ireland. If we need more GPs, then we should add 
more places to work courses so mm. that we can... How would you feel about the staff. idea of when people complete their college education and they graduate and they've done their internship, which they have to do after that, how would you feel about committing people to three to five years public sector work? Well, PJ, people aren't going to commit to jobs that uh, where they're working 14 hour shifts. You know what I mean? Back to back. Like, are, are, but the reason some course, of them are working 14 hour shifts is because an awful lot of them have taken plane and gone. But you see, PJ, if you give people proper shifts with proper work rotation, people have families know mm. people want a better work life balance. Like what we are saying is we would give GPs, we would sit down, we would talk to them, we would ask them what they need to retain GPs okay. in Ireland. That's the first thing. But the other point he made then is in relation to... like We we, were, we didn't wake up this morning and find out we were short with GPs, TJ. We've been saying this for a decade. Correct, we have. And Slogic Care, like, we, like all the practices... Slogic Care is another day's conversation, but we do have a chronic shortage of GPs. That is a huge part of this problem. Leave it there for now. I know you're very involved in the whole South Talk issue, but we are pressed for time. Thank you very much. I, I know we wanted you, you wanted to respond to a few things and we're mindful of that. We, we'll talk another time about it, Thomas, but thank you very much. Uh, 1850-715-996. Even looking at this Slanger Care idea at this stage, just it's, it's a waste of time because we don't know if it's ever even going to happen. 1850-715-996. Another place where there is a chronic shortage, and I mean a chronic shortage, is in childcare. And we all know about this. Spoken previously with Elaine Dunn, who's the chair of the Federation of Early Childhood Providers, and uh, she joins me again. Elaine, good morning. The problem continues. It does indeed, and it's escalating um, as we speak. Unfortunately, um, just in Cork alone, we know that service providers are they are just literally scrambling for staff at this time. Um, you know, they announce all these you know big funding that's coming into our sector um, next year, but it doesn't help us now on the ground right now. So we can't do anything about the wages. We can't change. So the budget the provisions announced a couple of weeks ago are of no use to you right now? No, nothing. We we get nothing until September next year. It's ridiculous. You know, you see everything else goes up overnight. But in the childcare sector, it just remains the same. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous. And we can't get staff. And then you see the Department of Education then also announcing that they're going to be looking for 1,500 more SNAs into their sector. So where do you think they're coming from? Obviously, they're going to come from us. You mm. know, they're going to leave our sector and go there because their paying conditions are much better. Yeah, you know, than what we can offer. And that's all down to chronic underfunding for many years. You look at the ECC services, they didn't even get a mention in the budget. They, we have had no rise in, in well, we've had a 7% rise in that scheme in 11 years. No, yeah. there's, you know, the inflation rate goes up every year by 3 or 4%, but we get nothing. We are just left there with nothing. And these services are vital to this sector and they're all going to end up closing their doors at this time. Let me bring in a specific sector or specific provider, uh, Elaine, and that's Avril Sheehan uh, from Cork Care A Lot. Avril, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you keeping? I'm very well, thank you. Elaine has brought the general picture to bear many times on the opinion line. Your own specific situation at the moment, trying to do your job or trying to provide your service. So at the moment, PJ, I had, when we went into lockdown in May 20, um, I had nine staff and five of them came out of the sector through that lockdown. So I had a whole new turnover staff when we reopened. 
and basically I had one girl just leave me the other day um, I've been four she's gone in to do an SNA in a local primary school I advertised the minute she handed in her notice I advertised and I've been advertising for the last four weeks so I got uh, three replies three CVs um, two they weren't qualified so they had no level five you know the minimum requirement for us to hire anybody and the third girl rang me the day of the interview and she was like I'm after waking up I have a bit of a cough and I can't turn up for the interview and I'll get back on to you so I don't know I tried her again you know to say you know it's a week later would you like to come for the job interview yeah. because I'm really stuck and um, she didn't answer the phone so I'm in the predicament now that this girl, this child in my care, who's entitled to 15 hours um, AIMS support, is now not getting it. So I'm, I do the AIMS now as in I'm after taking over. I put up all the adverts again yesterday and I asked all my friends to share, done the Instagram, done all the local, you know, job boards and stuff like that. Mm. And I'm getting nothing. I'm yeah. absolutely we, we hear nothing. that in well, the what's there's a WhatsApp group among care providers and it's inundated with people just looking for staff. Absolutely. And and providers are demented. Last night on our WhatsApp group, one was saying, anybody know of a names? I'm looking for a full time. I'm looking for part time. And this was out of just one service alone. I put up, I'm in the same predicament. Can't get anybody. If you know anyone, just let them, you know, let them know that I'm looking for someone. And, you know, like I pride myself in treating my staff well and paying them well as well. And I give them a year's free gym membership. We have scones on a Friday morning, you know, and all these little things. And I'm finding it really, really difficult. So, yeah, I don't know where the sector is going to go. It's just we're not being looked after, you know, as Mm. in with funding and stuff like that. So then it all trickles down. Everything is increasing on us, but yet our funding isn't. So like oil has gone up 166%, water rates over 300%. They're expected to go up in the next three years. Insurance has gone up 300% in the last seven years. Commercial bin rates, they're gone crazy, up 500%. But yet our funding hasn't gone up only 7%. That that sums it all up and, and the fact that you can't get staff on top of all of that just adds to the problem. Going to leave it there for no reason other than time. That's Avril Sheehan from Cork Carolot and before that Elaine Dunn, the chair of the Federation of Early Childhood Providers. Thank you both. Situation very stark. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Big day tomorrow. Celebrating the release of Ed Sheeran's fifth studio album, Equals. Cork's 96FM have copies of the album and free tickets to see Ed at Parky Creeve on Friday, April 29th. Listen to us all day this Friday and Saturday to win your way to Ed and grab a copy of his new album, Equals. It's out tomorrow, 29th. It's an Ed Sheeran winning weekend this Friday and Saturday, only on Cork's 96FM. See where Ed diagnosed during the week with a case of COVID. Hope he makes a full recovery and makes one very, very quickly.
Got a picture in from someone who says my relative sent me this photo. Her friend got spiked in the leg in Limerick over the weekend. And there's a photo of what looks like a very sore leg with, uh, you can see a distinct mark where something was stuck in it. And that looks like the whole leg is now bruised and swollen, which is nasty. I hope that person's seeing a doctor. 1850-715-996. Just want a quick mention for a story that upset me yesterday when I heard it, when he tweeted it himself. And that was uh, Charlie Board, the legendary Charlie Board, tweeted that he has been diagnosed with motor neuron disease. He was having some trouble with his voice over the last few months. And I was listening to a podcast that he did, that he does uh, and a couple of interviews that he was doing. And there was certainly something amiss with Charlie's voice. He's been diagnosed with motor neuron disease and uh, he's 72 now, pushing on a bit. He retired a few years ago. But he gave a wonderful interview, a couple of wonderful interviews yesterday. And I only bumped into Charlie. I worked alongside Charlie in my fairly regular visits to Leinster House in my news days. And you'd meet him at the the odd event around the country as well. He'd be travelling. One of the nicest guys that ever picked up a pen in the business of news and current affairs. One of the genuinely nicest guys. And you know, to young bucks like me who were learning our trade at the time, very helpful when you needed a bit of help or a bit of a guidance or a bit of a steer. Charlie Border never put you wrong. Lovely, lovely man. And I really hope, I really hope that he has, uh, he says he's living with this. And of course he is. But it's a vile and an evil and a nasty and a horrible disease. So I wish him well. I really do wish him well. 1850-715-996. Greenpeace, the well-known environmental organisation, has called on the EU to ban short flights on any route where a train journey under six hours is available. That would be a sign of growing pressure on governments to take bolder steps to event climate, or avert climate disaster. Of course, the COP26 summit is starting in the next few days. Greenpeace is suggesting that, say, Paris, Amsterdam, or Barcelona, Madrid, Berlin to Munich, presumably Cork to Belfast, although we don't have a flight there at the moment, should only be served by train, should not be served by flights, and that you shouldn't actually be allowed to run a flight between two places that are less than six hours apart by train. Lorelei Lemuzan is a campaigner with Greenpeace EU. Good morning, Lorelei. Good morning. Good to speak Thanks with you. Thanks for having me this morning. Good to speak with you. In a country like Ireland, where... You know, we don't have the best in the world in terms of train and local travel. Like, we depend on sometimes short-haul routes and regional airports for foreign direct investment. So we read this with some concern. Why Why is banning of short-haul flights important to Greenpeace? Yeah, so actually aviation is one of the most most climate damaging industries in the world. And aviation has been the fastest growing source of emissions in Europe in the past decade. And if we do nothing, the emissions will continue to rise while everyone else is reducing its emission. And this will lead us to climate collapse. Like aviation could consume one fourth of the global carbon budget that we have left by itself. So we really need to reduce air traffic to reverse that trend 
And our demand is to ban shuttle flights where there is a good alternative, an alter a train alternative under six hours. And we also demand the EU and governments to really improve the public transport system with more and better trains available and ferries. In the case of Ireland, I think it's really important. Yeah, like, I mean, we, we would depend, the, I mean, we, we are an island nation, as you well know, and we are dependent on our local airport here to bring foreign investment and business into a city like ours here in Cork from where I'm broadcasting to you and, and where, from where you're speaking to me. Uh, like, if we, if we couldn't have short-haul flights into Cork Airport, it would be a huge problem for business in this country. So actually, um, I think the, the only route that would be affected by our demand in Ireland is a domestic route from Kerry to Dublin because there is a train under six hours. And why we are asking for this is that air travel is really the most carbon intensive mode of transport. So it makes no sense to let airlines operate flights where they are already climate friendly attentive. And of course, we will be able to ban, restrict more flights when we have more and more alternatives like trains or ferries. So it's really important that the EU and governments invest in making the transport system accessible to everyone, but also reliable, affordable and efficient. And to reply to your questions, uh, I think we are, yeah, it, for, decentralization is also important for us. Um, but if what is important for decentralization is that people can go from point A to point B. And since we are in a climate emergency, it's crucial that actually people can move in a sustainable way. If decentralization relies on flying, it won't be good. If it goes with an improved public transport system that is accessible to everyone, and then the society, everyone will benefit from it. So that's really because flying is the most carbon-intensive mode of transport. That we are, that's why we are calling for a ban on shuttle flights where there is an alternative. Mm, well, you'd, you'd want to do an awful lot of work on our public transport system in Ireland to be able to, to do that. And I suggest, I think you're suggesting that aviation gets a lot of breaks, if you want. So maybe public transport should get similar breaks. Yeah, that's really true. Airlines enjoy tax exemption on fuel, on kerosene. They also have tax breaks on VAT. So that's one part of the cost of flying that is actually not reflected in the air ticket price, but that we pay with our taxes. And another part of the cost that we don't see and that is huge is the cost of climate change that is already there in the South countries, but also more and more in Europe. So basically, if aviation is yeah one of the most climate damaging industry and it has an impact, a direct impact on extreme weather events like the like for example floods or fires, so it's really important to cut flying to avoid this kind of events and to cut flying we need this balance of flights but the, this is only a first step. It, we also need to phase out these air travel subsidies and also make yeah a lot of improvement in the transport yeah. system in Ireland, but also elsewhere. The aviation sector itself, Lorelei, would say that, look, we are doing our best to, to make uh, flight more sustainable, different types of fuel, different types of, of engines, but will probably work best initially over a short journey, like elect electrically powered flight or hydrogen powered flight will work over shorter journeys. So innovation would suffer if you banned short haul flight. 
actually no but first i think it's like realistically we can expect a fraction of alternative fuels in 2030 we can maybe expect a hydrogen fueled plane in 2035 maybe an electric plane but it's nothing on the scale that is needed and climate scientists tell us that we need to act now in the few coming years so that would be coming too late and also the resources are limited. That's why we need to replace flights with trains or ferries wherever it's possible and use the solutions we might get in a decade or so for flights that don't have other options. Yeah. Like, yeah, connecting with islands. But it's it's really important to get to keep in mind that Aircrafts have getting have get have got more energy efficient in the last years, but it's never enough as air traffic is growing much faster. And there is also a lot of false solutions that are being promoted by airlines, whether it's offsets, biofuels. So actually, this is a lot of greenwashing, a nice PR tactic to pretend they are doing something. But mm. I know we know this is ineffective. So <laughs> this is why we really we need to reduce air traffic today. Yeah. So, realistically, what Greenpeace wants by 2030 is is a lot less tr- flight, a lot less, a lot less aviation. For whatever reason we take it, be it for business or pleasure. Yeah, and we see actually, like since COVID, we've seen that there is a lot of potential because now with the video conferences system, we avoid flights already, mm. and also there is more and more appetite for. Look for trains first, like there is a really a lot of appetite for night trains and trains. There is also appetite for this ban on shuttle flights, like the EIB, just the European Investment Bank that just released a, a survey this morning that shows that 87% of people actually want to replace flights with train services. So there is a lot of appetite. 87% of whom though? Who do they ask? Um, it was a survey made on European people and you get, get the results uh, country by country. And overall, this is really positive. It shows that people really care about climate emergency and they are waiting for more measures from governments. So the less aviation we have uh, over the next number of years, the better, I think, is what Greenpeace are saying. Lorelei Lamuzan, thank you very much for being with us. as campaigner with uh, Greenpeace. How would you feel about that, though? that they want to stop short-haul flight and replace it with trains or ferries and they'd like to do it as quickly as possible. So, effectively, uh, Cork Airport, would, would would it be rendered useless? Unless you're coming from a long haul journey. How do you feel about that? Like, some people are talking at the moment, I see some of it on social media, do you know, oh, I'm never going to go on a plane again unless I absolutely have to. Some people are talking like that as the as the climate debate uh, heats up, for want of a better expression. How do you feel about that, though? Greenpeace are saying that there should be no no two places that can be reached one to the other by a train journey of under six hours. They shouldn't be connected by by plane. So effectively, it would mean that if you had a Cork Belfast flight, they would want to ban that. Cork Dublin flight, they would want to ban that. They already take 
a look at the Kerry Dublin flight, the Farron Four Kerry to Dublin flight, and they say that hit, that those two places are connectable by train in under six hours, so that flight should not be going. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Your thoughts, welcome. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Did you know the term Asperger's Syndrome is, is kind of not used anymore? It's still out there, but people don't use it anymore. It used to be a kind of a word that said, I have one person has autism, another person has Asperger's syndrome. That practice is almost gone. Did you know, for example, that a lot of people with autism, as we would have called them, now prefer to be called autistic people? Things are changing. That there are girls who can remain undiagnosed with autism until they are very much into womanhood. In fact, I did speak to one woman on the programme, was it last year or the year before, Eveline Welton was in her 40s when she was diagnosed with autism. And there are many, many things we don't know about autism and that schools in particular don't know about autism. There's a new book out to try to address some of that, at least. One of the authors is Claire Droney. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, PJ. Thank you for having me on. Delighted to do so. Uh, where did the idea come for come from for the Everyday Autism Handbook for Schools? Well, um, I've been working as a teacher with autistic children and young people for the last 17 years now in a variety of roles. So first as a special class teacher in, well, in COPE, in Scullina and COPE, and then in Skull Trieste in Lota for nine years. And then I moved to London to work in an advisory role for school staff. So going around to schools in Islington and chatting with school staff and delivering training all about autism. And then I worked at the NCSE as, on the autism team here in Ireland for a year. And now I'm back in a mainstream school working as a SET or resource teacher. And basically, um, I guess between myself and my co-author, Annalise, who also works in a special class, autism special class, we've noticed key things that teachers and SNAs and parents want to know that come up time and time again. So we decided to put it all into a book and make it really accessible and easy to read. Yeah, there's an old saying, as I'm sure you've heard, if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. No, no, no two people are the same. Yep, absolutely. There's no one size fits all. Um, every single one of my students is different. However, with autism, there are some key strategies and some key differences or difficulties that many of our students will experience so you know to a certain extent you can try these kind of generic strategies and then tweak them to suit the individual needs yeah a couple of the things i opened with there the term for example asperger syndrome or asperger depending on which way you pronounce it pretty much gone now is it that people want it gone or it is gone well, it's basically that the there's two manuals that are kind of used to diagnose different disorders, shall we call them, for want of a better word. And um, the DSM-5, um, mm-hmm. it's what psych- psychologists would use basically to, yeah. to diagnose autism. So the DSM-5 has, has removed the term Asperger 
and the upcoming ICD-10, the International Classification of Diseases, they're going to remove it and they're going to put everything under the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, Asperger's can be, you know, a very important form of identity for some people. So some people weren't that happy with the, with this new development. Yeah. The, then the labelling as well, and I use that word reservedly because I know it's a bother for some people, like my son is is twenty four and and he's on the spectrum. Yep. I've always said that he has autism, but you say that the term uh, is autistic or I am autistic, not I have autism. That the term autistic is now more in vogue. Yeah, well, this has changed over the last few years. So when I first started teaching, we were told to always use person first language. So. Jenny is a woman with autism, for example, whereas the person comes first and the, the disability or the difference last. Now this is changing and we're using identity first language. So we're saying that, you know, Jenny is autistic. Autism is such an important part of Jenny that it can't be, you know, separated from her. And uh, there's the hashtag actually autistic community, mainly on Twitter, actually. And they're very vocal about pref preferring the identity first language because autism is like, the writing that runs through a stick of rock, it can't be separated from the person. You know, it's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to be celebrated. But again, I mean, you know, Stuart Nielsen, I'm sure you've I know talked Stuart. to him before in the show. Yeah, he said, basically, and I agree with him completely, the correct choice is the wording that people want used about themselves. So ask the person, you know. Yeah, he said that to me many years ago because I would put it to him. I asked him that question and well, everybody differs. Some people like to say, well, I have autism. Other people will say I am exactly. autistic. Once exactly. I decide what I like, then that's what I want you yeah. to use. Exactly. I think that's completely realistic. And also we're only hearing the opinion of verbal autistic people and some pre-verbal autistic people aren't able to yet tell us what they prefer. So, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's very individual. And that's a difficult yeah. one because I talk to a lot of parents. Uh, that there's a term, I, I don't know how you feel about this term, Claire. I, I hate the term nonverbal. I've never liked it. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I prefer to say that, well, Tony doesn't speak yet or or Mary yeah. doesn't speak. I don't like the term nonverbal. Is, is, that, is that in vogue still, that term? Um, you hear it a little bit, but it, it's it's going, it's going. You hear pre-verbal or early verbal. And, you know, Dr. Temple Grandin, one of the most yes. famous autistic people in the world, she always said that never say never. And I remember her telling a story in a lecture that, you know, there was an, an autistic man and he spoke when he was 64. So, you know, you can't say non-verbal definitively. So, yeah, I agree completely. Language is very important, especially around autism. Mm -hmm. You also say that, some companies are now, like Microsoft, for example, are actively seeking out autistic people because they bring certain skill sets to the work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've moved on now in the world from a medical model of disability, which is we're going to fix you. There's something wrong with you, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're, we're in the social model of disability, which is great, which is what can we do to help you? We'll change to suit you. So Microsoft, Ireland, Microsoft you know, international SAP, a German software company, they're seeking out autistic people because they recognize the strengths of this population, such as, for example, attention to detail, ability to focus on a task for a long time, um, ability to see things that we might necessarily notice um, as non-autistic people. And they're also kind of changing their way of interviewing. For example, Microsoft is doing five day interviews so that everything doesn't hinge on that one hour mm. interview, which an autistic person 
may or may not, you know, get wrong or get the social bit wrong. Sometimes it depends on the person. So it's great. This is really important, you know. Claire, I suggest you've aimed the book at schools and teachers and all that. But I would suggest that anybody who wants to learn more about autism or indeed has autism anywhere in their family circle or their circle of friends would want to read this book. I th- I honestly, and not being self-aggrandizing, I think I think we've written a really good product. Um, our aim was to write about the theories of autism and lots of strategies, but in a re- really accessible way that, you know, you'd actually wouldn't mind sitting down with a cup of coffee and browsing through it, which is rare for this kind of book, I think. So, mm. um, yeah, but it's written in simple language for that exact purpose. Yep, really simple language, kind of entertaining. We've used lots of our own um, experiences and case studies. We've included the voices of over 30 autistic people because you can't write a book about autism without having the voices of children mm. and young people and adults. I see Ad- about- Adam Harris is in there. I've spoken to Adam many times. Lenore Good, I've yep. spoken to Lenore. Yeah. Uh, yep. I've, I've never had the opportunity as yet to speak with Temple Grandin, but I would love to sometime. But yeah, you've, you've, you've taken, and you mentioned Stuart, Stuart Nielsen, you, you've taken a very yep. broad spectrum of view here. Yeah, we have, I think we've, uh, literally, we have put every single thing we know about autism into this book um, and want you to know, too. So I work on the Diploma in Autism Studies in UCC as well. Yeah. And this is this is the book contains everything parents, autistic people and teachers and SNAs would like to know about autism, I think. And it was huge. It was broad. I mean, we started mm. off at 60,000 words brief and we went up to 110,000 words so it turned into a monster but then we edited cut it down and mm. made it relevant well, hopefully I, I will always recall um the day that it was confirmed to myself and my missus that our boy was on spectrum i would have loved a book like this to sit down and read so i, I think a lot of people will will take it and and uh, look at it with with a great interest at what's in it. I think you've done something very very important. Claire Droney is one of the authors of a new book called the Everyday Autism Handbook for Schools. It's published by Jessica Kingsley Publishers. The other author is Annalise Verbeest. and that book is available now. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Thank you, Claire. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. Gemma Dunley's track Up the Flats was one of the surprise hits of the year so far and she comes to Cork for a much anticipated show at Cypress Avenue taking place on Wednesday, October 20th. Tickets are now on sale for the show from cypressavenue.ie. Access all areas. Panto returns to Cork Opera House this Christmas with a brand new show titled Nanny Nelly's Adventures in Pantoland. The announcement marks the much-anticipated live return of the Cork Opera House Christmas Panto running at the venue from December 10th until January 9th. Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, exhibition or gig coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96. XFM.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk? 
The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. A right, couple of bits of business to clear here. Premier League Live to remind you, back this Saturday at 96FM.ie with Trevor Welsh, powered by Talk Sport. Live coverage of Leicester City v Arsenal at 12.30. Liverpool v Brighton at 3. And Spurs against Manchester City. That's a biggie at half past five. Busy day for Trevor and the team. The Premier League Live online with now your sport on your terms. Stream only the games that matter to you most with now and listen Saturday on the Corks 96FM app or go to 96FM.ie. On Greenpeace and the idea that short-haul flights should be banned, in particular Lorelei from Greenpeace focusing on one here in this country that they would ban in the morning if they could. That's Kerry to Dublin because they say there is a way to get between those two places in under six hours by train and therefore there shouldn't be a flight. Kevin says the irony is that the UK are giving tax breaks for internal flights while hosting COP26. She's right and I completely agree with her. Remember, here's a good point, you spend two hours at the airport before your flight anyway, spending more money on junk. Then another one here says, uh, PJ, Greenpeace won't have much luck with that idea. Look at the USA and China. They use planes to get from city to city, like we use taxis. 1850-715-996, your thoughts. Just on autism, uh, one of the best shows of the last 10 years. I've talked about it more times on this programme now than I care to remember and probably more than you do as well. But season five, I never thought it would last five seasons. Season five of The Good Doctor has started. It's on Sky. They're into four or five episodes now in the US, but the first two are up there on Sky, or now, or any other provider that you have. The Good Doctor. It's about a doctor called Sean Murphy, who's a brilliant surgeon, but he's autistic, and it is remarkably good. Uh, I've been glued to it since the start. And Freddie Highmore, uh, if you just... And having watched the first couple of episodes of season five, just when you think Freddie Highmore can't get any better, he actually gets better. Brilliant. The good doctor back on Sky. Just a quick correction on our Premier League. It is Manchester United versus Spurs on Saturday. Did I say City? I think I did. Apologies if I did on uh, Premier League Live. Manchester United versus Spurs. 1850-715-996. Just on the music on the music vein there. One of the best shows in the world, if you are a Rory Gallagher fan, is Sinner Boy. And just in the week that a sea councillor Shane O'Callaghan has got an approval for the council to plan an annual Rory Gallagher festival here in Cork, which is a great story in itself. Sinner Boy, which is probably the best cover act ever in terms of Rory Gallagher uh, tribute act. They've done this all over the world. They're back in the Opera House tomorrow night uh, to perform the legendary concert that Rory Gallagher did there in 1987. Rory sold out the Opera House for one of the most famous concerts of his entire career. And Sinner Boy create this con- recreate this concert in the Opera House tomorrow night, presented by my good pal Tom Keating. It's a socially distanced event, and the ticket numbers are somewhat limited, but they are still on sale if you want to get a, a ticket for that. That's uh, Sinner Boy, featuring the music of Rory Gallagher from the 1987 concert, on at the Opera House tomorrow night. 
1850 You think of the name John Gilligan. What do you think of? You think of organised crime. You think of criminal godfather, criminal mastermind, powerful, powerful man who controlled a massive drugs empire. And a man who came from being a small-time burglar to one of the most powerful and, and feared criminal masterminds in this part of the world. One of his associates was a guy called John Trainer. In fact, Trainer died only this week, reading about that in the newspapers, and I knew that uh, my next guest would have something to say about that as well, because he's written the, the biography of John Gilligan. Um, speak, of course, of crime journalist Supreme Paul Williams. Paul, good morning. Good morning, PJ. It's great to talk to you again, my friend. And to you again, sir. Gilligan. Like, tell me about John Gilligan. <coughs> he went from being a small-time burglar <coughs> to being one of mm. the criminal masterminds of Europe. How did that happen? Well, the man who, the man who actually ushered in the drug trade as we know it today, he's the godfather of, of modern organised crime. Where did he start? He started like all of them. He started, his first conviction, PJ, was for robbing a chicken uh, here in Raffarnham, where I live here in Dublin, uh, in the 1960s. He was at that time, he was in his teens. Um, of course, people like Jerry Hutch, the monk, started off his career by stealing a bottle of lemonade. So they all start from pretty inauspicious beginnings. Um, and he, I suppose the best way to describe him is the reputation he has. Uh, and like, obviously, I know him and I know Trainer very, very well over many, many years and for a good reason as well as anybody in the journalism business does. <clears throat> he um, was a nasty, violent, sociopathic thug, which he still is today. He, with the best way to describe him, I suppose, in a sentence is he's a man, as I say in the book, who, who suffers from what we call Napoleon syndrome or small man syndrome. Now, you know me, I'm not particularly very high uh, when it comes to uh, stature, but I would be, he, I would make him look like a very, very small man. But that then <clears throat> epitomised and and characterised his behaviour in the world and his his personality because he he as a result of that he had a deep rooted inadequacy about his height, and so everybody he met, rather than shake hands with you, he'd give you a box in the mouth because then he felt that the best way to to start any relationship with anybody was to threaten them, to intimidate them. It didn't matter whether they were criminals or civilians or ordinary citizens, even guards. That was the way he operated. And he, from the, he come from a, a, a big family, lived in Ballyfermot. but his father was, again, you see the history of where he is and where he came from. His father was a brutal thug, a drunk, a, a petty criminal who used to beat the lard out of his wife and his kids, including John. So <clears throat> he grew up in a very violent uh, back atmosphere at home and environment at home. And he basically brought that with him right through his life. And he started with John Trainer in the B&I line, the old B&I line, the ferry line, um, uh, shipping line that the government once owned, a disaster. Uh, it was, it's gone many, many years now. <clears throat> and he basically, him and Trainer teamed up together and became great mates and started pilfering and stealing bits and pieces off the, sh the ships. Then you see, uh, as organised crime becomes an issue in Ireland in the 70s onwards, Gilligan becomes, uh, gets more and more involved in sp in a specific area of criminal activity called, <clears throat> where he was into burglaring, uh, burglarising places and then moved on to become the kingpin of uh, an organisation which specialised in the systemic robbery of warehouses and factories right across the country. In fact, it was a, a massive uh, nationwide operation he was running by the late 80s to such an extent that he was classified by 1987 as being one of the top three 
criminal gangs operating at that time in the country. The biggest, of course, was the General Martin Cattle, mm-hmm. the Gilligan's old associate, and the other was was the organisation controlled by the monk. Um, and then he ended up going to prison in the late 80s for... Uh, and by the way, one of the other uh, recurring themes in Gilligan's life has always been when I said to you about his attitude to people and uh, and his his uh, violence, his everything about him crackled, everything around him, the atmosphere, the aura around him always crackled with menace and intimidation. And he used that all the way through his life. So there were several, several times that the Gardaí almost had him, had him to the, to the courts. Uh, had him charged with serious offences that would have given him serious time. It would have, you know, knocked the stuffing out of him at an earlier stage. But invariably, people would come to the, to the court on the morning and say, <clears throat> and this happened on several occasions, and I've, low, I've mentioned at least 20 occasions like this in the book, where they would arrive at court and say, by the way, John Gillian came to my home last night, guard, and he stuck a sawn-off shotgun in my mouth and told me he'd blow my heads off, head off and kill my family if I testified. And there wasn't a thing at the time that the guardy or the judiciary or anybody could do about it. And that's how he escaped again and again and again. Why not? Eventually. Because there was just nothing, because the person who was intimidated, PJ, this was like it's a catch-22, the person who was intimidated, who tells the the guards who were intimidated, were not being prepared to then get up and give evidence in the court Mm -hmm. to say they were intimidated by Gilligan. So eventually then, this famous T-squad had been set up, the Tango squad was set up to target Cahill in the late 80s and was very, very successful, put most of his men out 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 of action, but they targeted Gilligan. And as a result of targeting Gilligan, they caught him with with, with what would be a very modest amount of uh, about three or four thousand pounds at the time of hardware goods that he'd stolen from a hardware store. And he, uh, as a result of that, the the guardy got him into the special criminal court where he couldn't intimidate jurors because he had intimidated jurors before. And they basically got him and he got four years in prison. And that is when he when he went into prison. The man who came out was even more volatile, more dangerous and more menacing. And because by the time he came out of prison in 1993, he had decided he was moving into the drug business and he was determined that he would run the drug business in Ireland and he was determined that he would never go to prison again in his life. And that's put him on a trajectory which made him the notorious and hated and loathsome household name he is today because that was what put him on a course to to ultimately murder our colleague Veronica Gear. Now there you go, I was just about to get to that Paul, not not only a colleague, a woman I met one or two times, I didn't know her well, but she was your friend Paul and that is why writing this is so deeply personal to you. But it is, it is very, it, as I've used the term before, you know, the mafia say, you know, it's not business, it's person or person, it's business. Well, for me, it was not so much business. It was as much biz- personal as it was business because <clears throat> I knew these people very well. I knew Trainer very, very well. Um, on the day that I stood looking at Veronica in the car after she'd been shot dead, I was able to say straight away, uh, the same as everybody else, who did it? We knew straight away. It was just like I'm going through stuff this week now the trainer has died and um, all of that and reflecting on the stuff. And uh, trainer is a very central player in this whole story uh, in, in the book. Um, trainer told me at least four or five times, PJ, um, that Veronica was going to be murdered by John Gilligan. He also told me that John Gilligan was going to murder me. Now, to put that in context, he started telling me that. I, I knew trainer for when I did the book, The General. He was a right-hand man of Martin Cahill, The General. He was this glorified consigliere in mafia terms. And after Cahill died, I did a book and uh, 
trainer agreed to talk to me about it. And I spent long, long hours with him and got to know him very, very well. Uh, as much as you can know a dangerous criminal um, uh, over that period of time. So basically in 1995, Veronica shot in the leg. Now we now know, and we do know, and we did know, it, 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 sorry, we knew around the time that Veronica was murdered, that Gilligan, our trainer, was the suspect for organising the shooting of Veronica in the leg in January 1995. But then Veronica um, recovers, and the gutsy, mad woman that she was, she went around threatening the criminals twice as much as she did before. But she was made a very big play to try and get interviewing tr Gilligan. <clears throat> and at this stage now, to put it in context, John Gilligan is on the dole, PJ. He's never had a penny in his life, or doesn't have a penny to his name officially. He is running now this this building, this Jesbrook. It was a massive equestrian centre outside in County Kildare in Enfield, on the Enfield, the, the Mead-Kildare uh, yeah. border. He's pumping millions into it. The guards are telling everybody, listen, and there's nothing anyone can do about it either because there was no proceeds of crime act that time. Um, and everybody, the guardy were getting very frustrated. The tax man, by the way, went after him. He told them to F off and they F'd off. They left him. Um, the social welfare went to investigate his kids who had 120 and 130,000, which, which, of course, they, they couldn't know this at the time. They had 120, 130,000 balance, euro or pound balance in their bank accounts. They had private homes that the father bought, yet they were on social welfare. The social welfare investigated them, trainer threatened, or, or Gilligan threatened them, and they put on the file, no more action to be taken. So, he, this is building, so his omnipotence is building, and everyone's asking the question. I remember we went and started writing stuff about him without naming him. But Veronica keeps pushing pressure, putting pressure on Trainer because she knew Trainer very well to, to get talking to him and to, to, to Gilligan. He said he wouldn't. But anyway, she goes out in September 1995 and he beats her. And this is what leads to her murder. This is the motive for Veronica's murder. He beats her savagely. But after that, I remember a trainer meeting me and I said, what the hell is going on here, uh, John? And he obviously always, because he was a conniving, duplicitous creature that he was, he always stood away and carefully cut himself out of the picture of the drug trade. He just said, look, that man is going to kill, kill her. And he said it to me numerous times. And sure enough, uh, in June of uh, 1996, he did what he was going to do. What, and then after that, I went to see trainer and trainer ultimately admitted to me although it couldn't be used in court at the time, but he ultimately admitted to me that, yes, train, Gilligan did organise the murder of Veronica. Gilligan did, Gilligan did order it. He did organise it. Um, I am terrified of my life. I, you know, this kind of nonsense. But he left the country after that in 1996 and has never been back since. And he's not even coming back, I believe, to be buried. I believe he's going to be cremated over there. But th that, that's, where, that's where Gilligan becomes the ultimate bogeyman in Irish criminal mm. history. And it's amazing that even though this is 25 years ago, PJ, people still intuitively, young people still intuitively know the name John Gilligan. They do. They do. And, 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 and a lot of people who are old enough to remember John or Paul will always remember the day and the hour when they heard. I remember being, coming back to work, I was, I was out on lunch break and I was coming back and I was listening to the headlines and the lunchtime news and it was breaking news that, it, mm. that there had been a shooting and that it was a journalist. And I remember yeah. my first thoughts, Jesus, that's Veronica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and you've, you've, you've got, before, briefly, Paul, you've got more files that you've never had access to before and they're in the book. Tell us about that. Well, you see, there was a, this is the proof that Gilligan actually used, again, fear and intimidation, which, as I said earlier, is a recurring theme in his life 
he used that very, very successfully from his prison cell to actually undermine the state's case against him in, in the conviction of his his prosecution for the murder of Veronica. And basically put, there were statements from his, he had a mistress at the time who was only a, a teenager. She was young enough to be his daughter. Again, another example of the man we're talking about. And she witnessed for, for months and months and months, like 14, 16 months, the build-up to Veronica's murder. Now, she wasn't the brightest button in the in the shop. Like, she wasn't the brightest of people. Um, <clears throat> she was totally taken off her feet by the fact that this guy was, you know, throwing money at her and giving her the high life. Her name was Cara Rooney. He met her in a bookie shop. But she witnessed all of this. In, more crucially, and which is in the book, I describe the, the build-up to Veronica's murder, the actual hour to hour of what was going on mm -hmm. in Veronica's murder at that time. And Gillian, she has him placed in a hotel room in Amsterdam where he's pacing up and down the floor, taking calls from Russell Warren, one of his gang members who was sent to follow Veronica that day uh, at, at Nace Courthouse. By the way, the information uh, that she was going to be at Nace Courthouse came via John Trainer, who had who Veronica had told him this. Um, <clears throat> he was also in touch with Brian Meehan, who's currently serving life of Veronica's murder, and Paddy, Paddy Holland, the Pat, Patrick Dutchy Holland, the hitman he brought in to, to kill, her, kill her. So she was part of her, her evidence would have corroborated mm. vital aspects of what became known as the Supergrass trials. And Russell Warren and other people became Supergrasses and turned against Gilligan and did a deal with the state to give their evidence. Now, some of their evidence was thrown out as unreliable because there was no corroboration for it. Carol Rooney corroborated everything that the Supergrass, particularly Russell Warren, has said. Crucial stuff about following the car mm. and what happened on the day of Veronica's murder. She could have put it behind bars for and, life. And, and it's all guy, it's all there. And as I said, Paul, what I always said about your books previously, mate, you actually couldn't make it up. That's the thing about these. They have to be true because you actually couldn't make it up. It's a fascinating read. I wish you well with it. Time has caught up on us. Uh, the great Paul Williams, with a new book simply called Gilligan. Inside the Secret Criminal Underworld. A fascinating and, and horrifying read because it ain't some novel that a guy's made up. It actually happened right here. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie the lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Don't forget, as part of Irish Music Month this October, in association with Hot Press, Cork's 96 FM remains committed to supporting and discovering new Irish music. Now, the final of the Cork's 96 FM local hero talent search took place at the weekend. Singer-songwriter Finton McCahey from West Cork was crowned the winner with his original songs, Lost Balloons and Platinum. Finton will now go on to compete against acts from all over Ireland. The overall winner... We'll get €5,000 in cash, €5,000 worth of music equipment, single released for them on the Rubyworks record label and guaranteed radio play on 25 stations in Ireland. We wish you all the best in the final. All the best to Finton McCahey from West Cork. An Irish Music Month on Cork's 96 events supported by the BAI Sound and Vision Fund and XL Retail, offering a great deal more 
at your local store. 1850-715-996. Coming up to Halloween, people who listen to me and have listened to me for a long time will know full well that it isn't necessarily my favourite time of the year for any number of reasons. But I do recognise that a lot of people love it and they go to huge effort with trick-or-treating and costumes and doing the kiddies up to look like all sorts of ghouls and goblins and for some strange reason lately superheroes like Superman. I have no idea what Superman has to do with Halloween. But an interesting piece in the Irish Examiner from Coleman Nocter, who's a child psychotherapist, was looking at another angle of this as to are parents under pressure, coming under pressure, to keep up with other parents at Halloween and what's driving it? Coleman, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you doing? Good, good to speak with you, sir. I've noticed the change. My kids are out of the trick-or-treat years now and I thank God every time Halloween comes around that they are. But it's all changed very much from when you were a youngster, hasn't it? It has indeed. I mean, I, I just think I remember the Halloween. It was never a big time of year for me, even as a youngster, but I can remember, obviously, the, the Halloween outfit was a sheet over your head with some holes in it and, and voila, you were a ghost or yeah. a a black sack and a, a bit of a hat and maybe some talc in your hair uh, and you you were a witch. And yes. that was kind of it. Um, and then, you know, as things got a bit more extravagant, we had those lovely masks. I don't know if you remember them. They were these kind of really sharp plastic things that you would kind of sweat under and, and yeah. uh, I can still smell the, tr- the trauma of it. But uh, and you couldn't and you see the out. There was eye holes, but they were nowhere near your eyes. That's right. Nowhere near them, nowhere near them. And uh, and if you stuck your tongue out, you'd cut it off. It was that sharp. But um, um, but it, it was interesting. I, I suppose I wrote the column based on my own experience of bringing my own lad when he was in junior infants into the dress-up day for school. And, of course, I, I didn't have a great deal of planning involved and gave him a bit of a stick. He wears glasses, and I kind of drew a, a lightning thing on his head and said, you know, you're Harry Potter, off you go. Um, but when I went in there, I really realised I'd underestimated the seriousness of the event. There was kids dressed as Freddy Krueger and Donald Trump. And there was all these like really extravagant um, costumes and things. And I can remember going, oh my God, this is, I've really underestimated this. I should have put so much more effort into it. Um, But it was more kind of the pressure to do that. And I kind of remember asking people about it, like dressing a a junior junior infant's child up as Donald Trump. I mean, they don't even know who Donald Trump is. And so, and I don't barely remember the, the, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. So Freddy Krueger wouldn't necessarily be part mm-hmm. of the children's lexicon of terms either. And it was more, it seemed to be parents that were kind of driving the, the kind of outfit choices or the extravagance. And there was huge amounts of arts and crafts to an amazing degree that were being done. And I can just remember as a parent who was under pressure for time and busyness. Uh, and I was thinking, how would I be like, I, you'd have to be up at five in the morning doing these kind of blood things on people's faces. And it kind of made me feel maybe I didn't care enough. Um, but then I was kind of thinking, you know, what is it for like for people who maybe financially don't have the means or time don't have the means? And, uh, and, and those things, again, it's another opportunity for parental guilt and parental competition. Um, yeah. I just think kids' activities should be left to them. You kind of wonder, don't you, Coleman, or at least I began to a number of years ago anyway, like who's competing to be the best here? The six-year-old 
or the parent. Yeah, like, and again, I think from the point of view, and, and look, uh, you opened your, your thing that, that Halloween isn't your thing and isn't mine either, and all for people who want to get involved in it and have the time and that. But when it's driven by the motivation to, to, to keep up with the Joneses or to outdo something or to be the most impressive, I think in some ways, uh, in many ways, parents kind of take over. You can see it in children's sport where they try and vicariously live their own lives through their children and kind of hijack the activity and make it into something. And, and I think the social media side of things, you know, we, we always say about teenagers under pressure to, to keep up with the Joneses and on social media. I think there's equally a kind of a parent Instagram pressure there as well to uh, to get the likes and things like that. And, and, and these and, and like or these WhatsApp are, groups where they're sharing the pictures of the kids. Pretty much, pretty much. And again, these are kind of they're they're insta moments. They're opportunities to to show what you can do or what you've done or or or, or what, what means you have to do these things. And I just think we need to spare a thought for those who are a little under pressure, as I mm. say, financially or time-wise, to be able to do that. And and it does, it, it makes you feel a little bit lousy, you know. And again, you know, I can remember during lockdown and things, and there were people posting up what they were doing on nature walks and building you know, bird feeders and everything else. And we were like barely getting maths and English done in this house and just feeling utterly lousy that we weren't doing it well enough. But um, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm not a fan of parental pressure and parental guilt. And I think a lot of, of where we're going with things is just it's it's excess, you know, and... Mm. Uh, and, yeah, that, that, that broadens, it broadens the discussion out a little bit, Coleman. Like you said, maybe... Halloween is becoming a little bit too competitive and is it the parents showing off to each other rather than the children actually having a fun day out? That That is it as much as it is. But like you said, the lockdown videos, the baking videos, like they went from being some slightly unburnt bread, it but practically entire wedding cakes coming out of ovens and all Instagrammed and all WhatsApped. Parents really do start competing with each other on behalf of their kids, and that can't be healthy. No, and I think, I suppose we live in a hyper-comparative culture where we can compare these things. That never existed before, yeah. you know, where you could, literally, I could show you, you know, my lasagna, and you can give me all the feedback you want on it. But um, it, it's kind of, it's an overcorrection in that we're, we're, we're getting too involved in the validation and the recognition of these things. And sometimes that can be at the cost of the actual moment you know what i mean in terms of you know i always say if you want christmas to be perfect you're going to be disappointed because it's it notoriously has problems but the more perfect you want it the more disappointed you're going to be and maybe it is about readjusting our expectations and saying well what is halloween about it's about dressing up and having fun and and and, and engaging in, in in some sort of spirited you know hilarity it's not necessarily about yeah. Um, me outdoing you or are you leave, leaving the school feeling uh, next year I got to do better yeah. you know? in terms of the, the work that you do uh, Coleman when parents are competing with each other like this does it have a, an impact or do the children take notice of the competitiveness and does it have an effect Oh, absolutely. And not necessarily just about this stuff, but uh, you'd see it greater in terms of academics, you know, where where parents are putting pressure on. on like, I always use this example. I When I was doing my Leaving Cert, you went to Grinds if you had a dreadful teacher and you were going to fail, whereas children are now sent to Grinds to guarantee they get a H1, you know. And so the idea that that this expectation of pressure that children feel because 
their parents want them to, exp- to, to achieve all these sorts of things. And you see it in children's sport, you see it in, in all kind of areas of their lives that, that where parents are over-involved in trying to set the bar of where they want things to do, that the fun goes out of it and it just becomes a source of stress. And, you know, we need to, you know, we need to manage our expectations as parents that, that you know, children are still children uh, and they need to have a childhood and a childhood lasts forever. And, and in many ways, um, you know, the Halloween thing might be kind of superficial and unimportant, but it may be a symptom of other pressures um, that sometimes our children are, are being part of that they didn't choose to be. You mentioned Christmas and we're only eight weeks out from it, eight, or eight, and eight weeks and two days out, if you want to be pedantic about it. Um, the expectations of children with regard to Santa, parents need to, need to be measuring those expectations too because we live in difficult times. We do, and again, in the last year and a half, we, we would hope that if we've learned anything, we, we, we've kind of learned to value experiences more than things. Do you know what I mean? But uh, I always was fearful that as soon as we got back, that that would reverse itself again. And, you know, Christmas, I would always say it's about memories. It's about, you know, what experiences you have. They stay with you. The, the, the plastic tat or whatever it is that you get, you can soon forget. Um, but I, I think we, we seem to think that the things create the memories. And it's not. It's the people that create the memories. And so for me, uh, I, again, it's an overpressured circumstance where um, parents need to kind of step back and reprioritize what actually is going to make this a success or not and it oftentimes isn't the extravagance of the the turkey or the um the amount of gifts on display okay now all right listen good to speak with you dr coleman nocter who's a child psychotherapist just on one of the elements of halloween that seems to have gotten a little bit out of hand i don't understand where i can Donald Trump like as a Halloween costume well I suppose in some ideas in some people's minds it's a it's a horror now <laughs> it's a no but like I saw super I was coming out of driving down to Douglas the other day and out of one of the schools the kiddies were coming out with all their Halloween costumes on they were lovely they were very elaborate some of them they were lovely but I was wondering what what is Superman doing on a Halloween display why is Spider-Man a Halloween costume? What, what's changed in that regard? <laughs> um, yes, I just wanted to touch base again with this. Um, Dr. Ronan Glynn, the uh, Assistant Chief Medical Officer, you'll have heard on the news this morning, he, he's kind of saying to parents, look, could we possibly tone it down a small bit this weekend? As in, yeah, we can. We can do the trick-or-treat. There's no problem. We can do a bit of trick-or-treat. But let us take it handy. Let us be wary of the fact that there's still plenty COVID out there. In fact, there's still way too much COVID out there. Here's what he was saying. People can trick-or-treat. People can do the things they normally do at Halloween. But maybe don't do it every day over the weekend. Maybe don't make, meet up with multiple different groups of children over the weekend. And the core message and the key message is that and, and it will mean that some children are very disappointed this weekend, but if you have a sick child, then please isolate them and don't let them mix with other children because RSV is circulating, because COVID is circulating and, and flu will be circulating in due course. So it's not a message that any of us want to be giving and it's not a message I'm sure that parents want to hear, but we do need to take the basic precautions. On the other hand, if we do take the basic precautions, there's no reason why people can't do the things that we normally do at Halloween. 
I just had to play that for you to ask you what you think. Uh, 4,393 cases reported in children under 12 in the two weeks up to last Monday. That's a lot of cases. The previous count over a similar period was 2,900. So it's gone up 1,500 in the two weeks to last Monday. And bear in mind that this is the start of midterm break. So he's just saying, you know, trick-or-treating can still go ahead. But take it handy. Bear in mind there's still a virus out there. And in particular, if there's a sick child in the house. It will mean that some children are very disappointed this weekend. But if you have a sick child, then please isolate them and don't let them mix with other children. Okay. Yeah, back to the whole where does Superman fit into Halloween thing. It's a kind of a Mardi Gras idea. The, the executive research desk is informing me. It's a kind of a Mardi Gras thing. Uh, like, you know, adopting a disguise there for fancy dress. So it's now just fancy dress. It's not ghouls and goblins and ghosts and things that go bump in the night. It's any kind of a fancy dressed dress to shield you from evil spirits. I see. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Cork's 96th FM. God, they said, Well, whatever you dress up as and wherever you go trick-or-treating, enjoy Halloween as best you can. But one thing that we're being asked not to do is not to use fireworks. And in particular, if you must use fireworks, and some people will insist on using fireworks, for goodness sake, don't let them anywhere near children. Anne McKenna is a consultant plastic surgeon at the Bonds. And Anne, you have seen some terrible injuries from fireworks and in particular sparklers. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, sparklers are magical looking and they're quite beautiful and parents will happily give them to the younger members of the group. But unfortunately, what none of us appreciate is that a sparkler is a metal wire that's dipped in a combustible batter. And it's the batter that makes the colour of the light and the amount of sparkage. And as metal wire is burning, it reaches up to 1,000 to 1,600 degrees Celsius. And younger children, particularly the under five, don't realise how hot it is. So they keep holding the sparkler until it burns down into their hand. And when it burns into their hand, unfortunately, it tends to weld onto their hand and cause catastrophic burns. How long does that take? It sounds like it could take only seconds. 
It does. It, it only takes seconds because the metal is so hot and also because it wells on, it can't be removed. So there is temperature and duration and that's what determines the depth of the burn. Wow. And what kind of injuries do you see? Obviously hideous burns, like you're talking about the, the wire actually burns into the flesh? That's right. And unfortunately, every year, there's at least one or two children treated in burn units in Ireland who will have a partial hand or whole hand amputation. Good Lord. And also, however devastating it is for families who experience a burn within their own family, as I said, the combustible batter that the wire is dipped in causes sparks. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I heard you talking about Halloween costumes earlier not all Halloween costumes are flame retardants. So we've also had incidents where a parent's child is holding a sparkler and a child standing next to them. Their Halloween costume has gone up in flames and then that child has had a very large flame burn. Because contrary to popular belief, and what I mean by that is a lot of people would not think that those sparks that last for 20, 30 seconds, that they would be capable of causing a fire, but they are. They are, and a lot of the Halloween costumes, particularly girls' costumes, have multiple layers and wings and a long train, and all those layers trap oxygen, and oxygen fuels fire. So very small sparks on a flammable fabric with oxygen can create a very big burn. My goodness. And obviously, if a child is injured, it's a huge uh, trauma for them and their family but if you give another person's child a sparkler to play with you carry that guilt correct and and also the liability for it which is a whole other discussion but these burns are devastating as you said not just for the child but for the families because on average a child with a burn even a second degree burn will be in the burn unit for about three weeks minimum. So one parent usually has to give up work for that time while their child is undergoing changes of dressings on the burn unit with the nurses. And then the decision is made whether that child will need skin grafts or not. And then they stay for another two to three weeks after their skin graft for rehabilitation and for the grafts to heal nicely. So that's quite a long time to be in hospital and to be out of work. And then the offshot effect on the other family members. Yeah. Unfortunately, if one parent is for fireworks and the other parent is against fireworks, we have had families where there's been some blame between parents. And unfortunately, some parents have separated and gotten divorced as a result of a, of a Halloween right. injury that started as such a beautiful moment. Right. Of course, we're not supposed to buy or use fireworks. They, they are illegal, but yet it still happens. I wish, I, I suppose, people in your position and wish that it didn't. We do, we do for sure. And in the American Burns Association, the motto which they, they publish widely at this time of year is let the pros do the show. And when there is professionally orchestrated fireworks, they do take into account where they're launched from and also where we where they land. And I have had children who've been sitting innocently on hills looking at beautiful firework displays held in a park and a firework has landed on them. So, I mean, you think if you're sitting on a hill, you're safe. 
Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, you're not. And that's why it's so important that these things are managed professionally. Yeah. But there are safer alternatives, which we can do. Glow sticks are fabulous. They're very dramatic. They're very bright. They're completely safe. Mm-hmm. And they're perfect for the under five age groups. Popping yeah. confetti, streamers, the lovely candles that are battery operated. There's lots of safer alternatives out there now that we wouldn't have had 10 years ago. And I'd really encourage people to try and use those this year. And lastly, if unfortunately you do have an accident over the weekend, what should you and what should you not do? If you are having fireworks and sparklers, it's very important to have a bucket of sand within easy reach so that the flames can be extinguished. So you have to stop the burning. The second step is cooling. So you need to push the burn. And this applies to a kitchen burn, a bonfire burn, a barbecue burn. You need to hold the burnt area under running water for 20 minutes. And what that does is that it cools skin. And skin which is cooled back to normal temperature will heal and won't need skin grafts. What we normally do in Ireland is we tend to wrap the child up as much as possible, put them in the car and go to the emergency department. Unfortunately, when you wrap children up as tightly as possible, you're making a hot area hotter and you're actually deepening the burn. So, So it's really important. You don't go to hospital immediately. Go to the nearest water source run the hand, the face, the body under cool running water for 20 minutes and then don't put on any creams because the poor Burns nurses will have to scrape those creams off the children, which hurts them. So don't put on any creams because we're not going to be able to see how bad the burn is. So just simply bring the child with the burnt area exposed in the car or by ambulance if appropriate to your nearest burn centre, which would be Cork, Dublin or Galway. Of course, the... The instinct, every parent's instinct, is wrap the child up and get into the back of the car, but they forget the 20 minutes of cold water. That makes a huge difference, does it? It does. And whilst firework injuries are topical at the moment, the commonest burn injury in children under five in Ireland is a scald. So they'll grab the handle of a saucepan or they'll pull the lead on a kettle and they'll pull it down onto their heads and bodies And again, people grab the child and run. But as they're driving to their nearest hospital, their nappy is full of boiling water. And often the face and shoulders don't do too badly, but the nappy area can have second or even third degree burns as the poor child has been sitting in their nappies. So again, if the clothes are wet with the burning liquid, take them off. And very, very graphic uh, are your descriptions and I'm glad that they are because we're it's it's a very dangerous weekend and I, I hope that you you I, I expect your hope would be that on Monday morning you have no new patients absolutely absolutely that's our hope every year all right all right listen thank you very much and indeed thank you for the work that you and your your colleagues do that's Anne McKenna she's a consultant plastic surgeon at the Bonds Hospital the danger of fireworks and sparklers. Sparklers are not actually illegal. It's actually it's a bit of a grey area. It's a category F1 firework, uh, which can be bought and used by the general public.
And that includes most sparklers. It's anything with a kind of an explosive element in it are the ones that are illegal. Most sparklers are covered under law, but they're dangerous. They're deadly dangerous. Do not give a sparkler to a small child to hold. Just just don't. And do not let ever let them alone with them if you must use them. 1850-715-996 Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. I missed this and I hope that they're not gone out of range, although they're never out of, never out of range now with wonderful things like playing 96FM on the app through the car. But anyway, it would be amazing if you could wish my daughter Caroline O'Sullivan a happy birthday. We're currently on our way to Kildare Village as a big surprise. She's seven. Well, you know what? Seeing as I'm late, we might well do this. Happy birthday. Go on. To Don't do this too often. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Here, Caroline O'Sullivan. Right. I, I don't normally make a fuss like that unless I have a queue out the door for it but seeing as we might have missed it since on our way to Kildare Village for a big shopping treat, why not? Just on the Greenpeace call for short-haul flights to be banned uh, particularly looking at something like the Kerry-Dublin flight and they certainly would be completely opposed to a Cork-Dublin flight or a Cork-Belfast flight just heard Greenpeace, I think a ban on short-haul flights where there are trains would work well for Ireland and for Cork. The new cleaner planes would be wasted serving land routes like Madrid-Barcelona when islands like Ireland really need them. Okay, and just in response to that earlier comment that Greenpeace won't have much luck with the idea because in the USA and China they use planes to get from city to city like we use taxis. See, China are building train lines like mad at this stage. And Obama and Biden spent a fortune, both of them, on high-speed rail systems. Uh, Trump, not so much, but um, yeah, Biden will use a lot of Obama's groundwork to put in more more high-speed trains. And I was reading Brian O'Donovan's book. Remember, Brian was on the show with me last week. The RT Washington correspondent has written a book about being there. And he talks quite an amount about using trains. Uh, you get pretty much anywhere in America by train. Any two major cities, pretty much all of them connected by, by trains. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Morris was on then about Halloween. Morris says, "Lest we forget, Halloween is about Satan. There's no fun in it. It's about darkness and the spiritual world." As a lead satanic said recently, "At least we have your children one night a year. Have nothing at all to do." says Morris, with the unfruitful works of darkness. Okay. Um, that's sort of uh, new on me. Well, look, uh, 
It's actually based on Samhain, the old Gaelic festival for the end of the harvest, is what Halloween was. But that's a rather dark take. I mean, I'm not a fan of Halloween, Morris. My goodness me, I'm not a fan of Halloween. But that's the darkest take on Halloween that I've ever heard. It's about darkness and the spiritual world. Have nothing at all to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. 1857 We got a lovely email from the Surgeon Noonan Society at uh, UCC. The what, page? The Surgeon Surgeon Noonan Society at UCC. Surgeon Noonan is a charity at UCC that goes back the bones of 50 years, certainly more than 40 years. And I remember people being associated with it. I remember a friend of mine who studied medicine becoming associated with it at one point. It's a fabulous charity run by medical students. Johnny Collins is their current chair and joins me. Hi, Johnny. Hi, PJ. How's it going? Good. Give us a brief potted history of the Surgeon Noonan project. Who who was Surgeon Noonan? Yeah, um, so we were founded um, to commemorate the late uh, Mr. Tim Noonan. Um, so he was a medical school um, uh, surgeon in UCC um, and he graduated um uh, from UCC at First Class Honours. Um, he was really interested in humanitarian work and he volunteered um, time in like the Congo missions um, and he spent many years working over there. Um, and then when he passed away then, 1977, um, the, the School of Medicine then set up our society then, Surgeon Noonan, um, in, his, in the kind of same kind of spirit to kind of commemorate his work and to um, just kind of keep up his humanitarian efforts that he was um, doing. I see. I see. And the students then raise money for charity every year. And where does that money go? Yeah, um, so we spend the whole year fundraising. So we have lots of different events during the year. Um, and it's run entirely by volunteers. Um, and we're all fourth-year medical students in UCC. Um, so there's no kind of like, you know, there's no um, admin costs or whatever. Um, and all the money goes then to the hospitals we, uh, we support. And it goes towards buying basic medical equipment, um, stuff like blankets, food for patients in hospital, um, chest x-rays, mosquito nets to prevent malaria. Um, and it, it, it goes, you know, a little bit of money goes a very long way over there. And yes. as little as 50 cents can um, buy um, mosquito nets to prevent malaria. Hmm. Um, did did, did I see some of your colleagues out x-ray. Friday night? It was, I was walking down uh, the, the city after being at the jazz launch. D- did I see a few of your of your friends around with buckets? Yeah, I'd say if you're out, if anyone was out over jazz at all, you definitely would, run, would have run into us. Yeah. Um, we were out um, collecting the pubs all weekend there, so we'd have, we'd a very successful weekend um, yeah. collecting. Which is good because it's been a very hard year for fundraising. Now, the nice people at Nine Motors have given you something very special to raffle. They have, they have indeed. <laughs> um, so we've teamed up with Nine Motors Bandon, um, and they've actually given us a brand new um, Kia Picanto to raffle off. Um, so this is probably our major fundraiser this year. Um, tickets are €10 Euro and they can be bought on our um, IDLNA website. Um, if you just Google Surgeon Noonan um, Car Raffle, it will come up on Google. Um, and again, all proceeds of that are going to the hospitals we support to buy the stuff like the blankets, the food, the chest x-rays, antibiotics, painkillers. Um, so at the moment, we have about 1,000 tickets sold. Um, we're hoping to have a maximum of 4,000 uh, sold. Um, and the draw will take place on the 5th of February um, at the Surgeon Noonan Ball, which will hopefully be going ahead. Oh, so loads of time um, then. 
yeah, we, we gave ourselves lots of time, you know, because we've, we've lots of other events going as well. So um, just to make sure that, we, you know, we, we do hit our target. Um, and just Excellent. to think it'd be a nice event well, as well. Well, if, you, to, if uh, you've got rid of, of a, th- uh, if you have a thousand tickets gone already, you've plenty of time to get them sold before February. So that's great. I wish you the best yeah. of luck with that. Johnny. Thanks a million. Super idea. Thanks very much. And, uh, and thanks a million for having us on as well. Delighted. Continued success to the Surgeon Noonan Project. I think it's one of the it's one of those kind of undersold charities that's just there. It's been there forever. It's medical students that do it. They raise loads of money for uh, medical treatment overseas and it's great to give them a, a plug now and again. So uh, thank you for being with us on the programme. That is Johnny Collins, chairperson of the Surgeon Noonan Project. And they're raffling off a lovely car, courtesy of Nine Motors. Uh, decent people there as well. giving it, And all proceeds going towards hospitals in sub-Saharan Africa. Actually, uh, for hospitals in Africa, I reference, if I could please, to my podcast, uh, 20 Minutes With. A new episode coming up this weekend, by the way. Took last weekend off. New episode coming up this weekend. But a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking with Dr. Niall Conroy, good friend of ours on the opinion line talking about the pandemic and talking about the pandemic in Queensland and all that. In the episode where we discuss uh, his own story, he, we talk very little about the pandemic because Niall's story is remarkable. And he talks about uh, being in Sierra Leone and being in a hospital in a place called Bo in Sierra Leone and they had no electricity and no water. So we've no idea how lucky we are here and with how well equipped our hospitals are at the end of the day. To finish today, I mentioned this earlier on in the context of a great gig at the Opera House uh, tomorrow night, Sinner Boy recreating Rory Gallagher's concert of 1987 but councillor Shane O'Callaghan have you got the go ahead yet for the actual festival or is it still at the idea stage good morning morning PJ how are you um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I put down a motion um, calling for Cork City Council to work with the local hus- hospitality sector to establish and fund an annual um, Rory Gallagher Music Festival in Cork. And, you know, such a festival would assist the local hospitality sector by attracting music enthusiasts to Cork, enthusiasts to Cork on a specific weekend every year and would recognise uh, Rory Gallagher's enormous contribution to, to Cork and to music. That was the, That's the wording of the motion. Um, that was passed unanimously by Cork City Council on Tuesday night. And there's also been a, an official response from the council executive, um, which basically states that they'd be happy to work with any group or organisation who wishes to develop an arts-based uh, festival based around Rory Gallagher music. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've been speaking to um, officials in community culture and placemaking about it as well, um, including the director, um, Adrian Rogers, who's who's very enthusiastic about it and who's, you know, um, very excited about about the the whole thing. So, yes, I mean, insofar as you can have formal approval, I, th- I think it is there, mm. uh, both in terms of the councillors and, and the executive. I had the pleasure of meeting um, Rory once um, and chatting oh, with him really? briefly up at Cork Airport. I did, a very quiet fellow. But I well, think, Shane, we don't actually appreciate the man, such what a global star he was. Sometimes. No, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, um, PJ. Um, like, I mean, I, as you as you mentioned there, the, the, the that that event is happening in in the Opera House tomorrow night. That should be fantastic. And and the music promoter of that, Tom Keating, has been in contact with me um, as well. There's been lots of people in contact with me who are very enthusiastic about getting involved. Like, 
um, you know, representatives of the Victorian Quarter. I mean, you know, because McCartan Street, I mean, Rory would have major links to there. He lived there for a while. He would have spent a lot of time there. Um, you know, he's still got family connections there. Yeah. And, you know, also businesses in the Huguenot Quarter have, have been yeah. on to me about it. And there are festivals, like there are already festivals. There's a festival in Poland, I believe, a massive one. And there's one in the Netherlands. There's one, of course, in Ballyshannon in Donegal. It's where Rory was yeah. actually from, even though he was a, a favourite son a of Cork. And there's a Cork Rocks for Rory uh, for a number of years, which is kind of a, you know, it's kind of a small uh, a festival that, that happens in Cork for, for Rory mm. Gallery in fairness every year for the last number of years. But I like what I'd be talking about is a much larger yeah. um, city-wide event, you know. Yeah. And look, the Ballyshannon event festival is a great festival by all accounts. But, but it's not Cork and we want one in Cork. So when might it happen yeah. if it were to happen, Shane? Um, well, I'd be hopeful that, you know, maybe something could get off the ground by, by next year, I, 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 hopefully. I mean, look, I mean, the next step is to, I'd be hopeful of, of, of organising a meeting between um, City Hall officials and perhaps representatives from the Victorian Quarter who are very enthusiastic about, as they say, the Huguenot Quarter, music promoters. And, and I think there also should be input from the Gallagher family. Mm. Um, you know, particularly Rory's brother Donald. I mean, because like they they should play a crucial role in advising how best to celebrate and commemorate. Yeah. There's uh, an Rory's idea that it might be based around, around, say, McCartan Street, Coburg Street, Patrick's Hill, which is kind of Rory's yeah, footsteps, as it were. Yeah, though that I I, I look, this is very much obviously in the very early stages. But what I'd like to see is kind of maybe two hubs, one in you know the the McCartan Street, Patrick's Hill area, and then maybe another around Paul Street. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, around the opera house, you know, where he obviously would have played as well, you know, and where the sculpture of him is, is on Paul okay. Street, you know. So, I mean, those two, the, two the, them being the two centres mm. of what I would hope to be a, 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 eventually develop into a massive city-wide mm. festival that so, people would come to from, from all over the world. And because he's got a massive fan base worldwide, uh, they probably would, and it would be a great idea for the city, and hopefully it'll happen sometime in 2022. Shane O'Callaghan, Councillor Shane O'Callaghan, thank you for that. Could we have our first Rory Gallagher Music Festival in 2022? Someone talking about closing off McCurtain Street, Patrick's Hill, and Coburg Street from 6 o'clock on Friday to midday on Sunday as a base for the festival. All these things have to be talked about. But not today, because we're out of time. We'll see you tomorrow, just after 9. Opinion line on Corks 96 FM with McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.